listening to WHIVLP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade. Got a very special guest today, uh, Mike Duncan. Uh, he is the host of the uh, Revolutions podcast, and which is just wrapping up um, kind of in, in these last couple of weeks. And then he was also uh, the uh, host of the uh, History of Rome podcast, which I listened to, I think probably twice because I'm insane. Uh, <laughs> because, but um, yeah, I've been listening. I've been listening to your stuff for a long time, Mike. Say hello to the people. Uh, hello, people. Uh, good morning, comrades. <laughs> uh, we're recording a little bit early. Uh, we are recording actually. It's funny that we sort of ended up this way because they have this giant election that's supposed to be happening like the Tuesday as of recording, but it's going to be the, the the radio version is going to be dropping on Saturday. So let's not like make it about that. And I'm not make a whole lot of predictions because we can look like a bunch of you know dingus. So so this is, this is going to be running after the, uh, the yeah. election happens. Yeah, yeah. All right. So so we'll, we'll most likely we'll all be on several barricades <laughs> uh, i mean I, I, uh, look i hope that's not the case we, we don't have we don't have we don't have to talk about the election <laughs> i hope that's not true for a lot of reasons but like especially um but but to, to kind of talk about barricades and and get involved in i guess right into it so um i guess do you want to just talk about uh revolutions and like what got like what got you to begin that podcast what got you to sort of like drive you through this entire like what eight years nine years prox proc um uh I'm, I'm right at i'm right at nine years i just i just went over nine years and it started in september of 2013 yeah. when revolution started yeah you want to talk about like what especially coming after the history of rome what kind of like got you into do, why did you want to do this i guess there, yeah, there were a bunch of different things um, that kind of fed into revolutions being the right idea for me. Um, you know, one of, so I did the history of Rome. Uh, I started that in July of 2007, and that ran through 2012. And when I wrapped that up, I knew I wanted to go on and do another podcast. Um, and and most people were expecting me to, you know, do like the history of ancient Greece or like the Peloponnesian <laughs> War or, you know, ancient civilizations. And really, like when I was moving out of the history of Rome, I didn't want to be I didn't want to box myself in permanently just to the ancient world. I have more I have more interest in that. My interests are broader and more general than that. Um, so I knew I wanted to move into more modern-ish history uh, to avoid getting, you know, typecast as just an ancient history <laughs> guy. Um, and revolutions is something like the, 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 you know, sort of the actions, the context, the the event of a revolution. I think is something that is inherently interesting, mm -hmm. right? I think that it inherently draws people's attention, and it certainly draws my attention. It's a giant fire, like it's a giant bonfire. If, you, if you're looking at all of history, um, like what are the most interesting things that are going on here? A revolution is something that I think is like particularly interesting to to the human mind. Um, why and think, certainly why think, I... Why do you think that's interesting? Uh, why do you think they're so interesting? I didn't mean to interrupt you, but like you, you say that you think that they're interesting, and I, I, I agree, but like I kind of like to, to kind of noodle on like what is so like obviously it's like great tumult and that there's a reason there's a significant shift that's taking place within you know, like societies and stuff like that but like i don't know maybe that that's just self-evidently interesting i suppose i i think that's part of it i think it's self-evidently and self-evidently interesting and uh what i'm talking about right now like in i'm i'm wrapping up revolutions right now and so i'm producing these appendices episodes that we're, we're going back and we're sort of looking at everything that i talked about over the last nine years these 10 or 12 great revolutions that i covered um and the thing about revolutions is that they are incredibly rare events um this is something that i do talk about is most of the time most places are not convulsed by revolutions. 
And most of the time, people are just muddling along politically and socially and economically. And so a whole confluence of things needs to occur for something as insanely tumultuous as a revolution to break out. So that's that's just one thing. Like it is a unicorn type event in in history. We 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 can look back and say, oh, there have been many revolutions in history, but the number of revolutions in history that have happened is dwarfed by the number of not revolutions that have happened in right. history. Most of the time, it's people just like I say, just kind of muddling along through life. Um, and the other part of it, though, is that revolutions, like if you're looking at a revolution as a historical event, you are going to wind up talking about and needing to talk about like almost every facet of that society. Um, so if you're interested in economics or you're interested in politics or you're interested in culture, material culture, um, you know, language, um, you know, gender politics, racial politics, like most of these things are going to be fed in to one of these great revolutions. And you're going to wind up talking about these things. And of course, they're also the, um, you know, they're the pivot points of any of any historical process, right? Mm -hmm. They are a, a time and a place where there was something that was before and there's something that was after. And then this is the hinge point. And this is why I think like, just naturally, we look to these moments and say, oh, this is something that is really worth investigating because we're going to learn a lot about the society and, you know, a lot about ourselves if we're talking about our own histories um, in talking about the revolutions that made the societies that we presently live in. Yeah, it's almost like like almost the, the seemingly like the most fundamental questions that exist within this, or I guess the most fundamental like assumptions that people sort of take for granted on a day to day basis. Uh, revolutions are so upsetting to even like that to the basic order of the entire world is or, exactly. or the society it's it's really like it, it's hard to understate like how um how disruptive these things can be to an established order and um you know there's there's definitely a lot more to to talk about there but um it's just it's 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 literally like up is down as at times <laughs> And and that's the thing. And and sideways is sideways, right? And it's never, you know, revolutions are never just binary events. Um, there's always, you know, 10, 12, 15 different ways that a revolution could wind up. And like you say, I think everything gets on the table and everything gets discussed in really um, in really active ways. People are contesting the, the basic um, norms of society, the basic rules of society, the basic habits of society. Uh, and when you get people doing those kinds of things, you know, this is something that at least for me, you know, I tend to like turn my attention to and be like, this is very interesting to me. And so, like, you know, going back to like your very original question mm -hmm. there, you know, I'm coming out of I'm coming out of the history of Rome. I want to move into something that is more modern. Um, and, and just growing up as a kid, I was very interested in both the American Revolution and the Russian Revolution um, because I'm, I'm like the last of the Cold War kids. Um, yeah. I do sometimes joke that I'm the last person who remembers the Cold War uh, <laughs> because most like the Berlin Wall came down when I was nine years old. And yeah. if you were just a couple of years younger than me, you probably don't remember the Berlin Wall coming down at all. And even as a nine year old, most nine year olds were not like that interested Conscious, in yeah. current events that way to like really be uh, aware of what was going on and like watch it on the news, which I did um, because I was weirdly precocious about <laughs> um, politics and history. Well, congratulations, have been on from being, the beginning. congratulations on being the first millennial or the last Gen Xer. I'm not sure which one that is. But <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I know I'm, I'm of this little we're, we're very protective of our bit of territory where there's a number of different names for us. It's these the, those of us who were born like 77 to about 82. Uh, yeah, um, we're we're Zennials. Um, <laughs> you know, we are the, the Oregon Trail generation because uh, I'm too young. I'm too young to be Gen X. Yeah. Um, but I'm too old, really, to be a millennial. Yeah. So, but, I got, I got so a, this little cohort. I was just gonna say I got a little bit of that because I'm like 84, born in 84. So like I, I definitely like was not consciously like I, I know like wow I see like David Hasselhoff in Germany when the Berlin's falling when the Berlin Wall is falling or whatever. But I don't know what's going on. But definitely like right. some of the later sides of Oregon Trail. I got the updates for Windows for the Oregon Trail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. See, I, we were playing the original, and then yeah, you would you would type in your buddy's name, and it's like West died of dysentery, and, and we'd all laugh. Um, but so, but if you were born in '84, like you don't remember like watching on the news the Berlin Wall coming down, right? Because you were five at the time, or do you? I mean, you, you can know that something is happening you can definitely re yeah. remember like pictures of like david david hasselhoff singing about freedom and the like that's the that's one of the most enduring memories for me i guess that's david, that's well that's what it is for you yeah is, is 
<laughs> the Baywatch guy was oh, like, what, this guy, <laughs> you know, just became like, like synonymous with Germany for some reason. <laughs> Well, because Germans love David Hasselhoff. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure why. <laughs> as as Nor as Norm as Norm Macdonald taught us all repeatedly <laughs> over the years, Germans love David Hasselhoff. Yeah, it's um, it's. And it's but true. you know, it's what, so you know what's actually interesting. I don't. I don't usually get this deep into the weeds on this question, but you guys might. You know, you guys yeah. might find this interesting. That that the actual specific pivot um, from the history of Rome to revolutions was. Uh, I was going to go back to school and get a master's degree in, in um, public history because mm-hmm. that's really what I do. I, I'm a public facing. Mm-hmm. Uh, historian and communicator. Um, but when I applied to school, it turns out that I didn't actually have enough undergrad history credits to qualify for a history master's program because I had studied political science and philosophy as an undergrad. So I had it. So I was living in Austin at the time and I went to UT and I took a couple of classes just to like get, um, just to get the, the requisite stuff. And one of the classes was like a Latino history class um, and specifically like Tejano history, like like the Latino population in Texas. Um, and, and then also like um, uh, in the, the guys in California. And one of the books that we read in there was about the United Farm Workers Movement. Oh, and it, nice. was, it, was a, it was a book about actually like the lab, like the guys who actually ran the union mm-hmm. um, as opposed to Che uh, uh, himself. Or not Chavez. Jay. Um, okay. Chavez. Yeah, yeah, Chavez. Sorry. Um, I always, God, I always do that. Um, and there I did. I cursed on your radio show. That's fine. Right. That's what I did. You can blip that out. But um, so it was. It was a book about the United Farm Workers Movement. Which which started out, you know, as as very much about just like securing bathrooms and breaks and like shade spots and the you know basics. better wages and what's that the basics like the most basic things yeah. that you can possibly like expect like that you should have for workers is it's like like it, it, it's really i mean one of i, I don't mean i don't mean to keep interrupting you but like i do want to sort of like like put a point on this is that that you know we have situations that are very sort of you know similar just in different conditions when it comes to i mean i talk about this way too much but uh we just uh, on our last show talked with uh, mandy landry who's a um who's actually running for louisiana state senator around here one of the things that came up is like um worker misclassification for workers that are um that workers that are um they don't have status they don't have immigration status right and um mm-hmm. they essentially are so taken advantage of because they have no, no recourse in the system that we currently have but yep. you know like then essentially um so essentially like this is these are questions from the 1960s that are not settled right now oh yeah and and this is and what what the book was was talking about is that so they 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 wage this battle right in california and they do get recognized as a union they do start fighting for these basic causes and then the movement kind of split in two mm-hmm. between the unionist wing of this fight who do really want to now focus on sort of like the legalistic stuff you know going around having inspections making sure all these conditions are met and then what Cesar Chavez wanted was far more of a sort of political and ideological movement to expand out. Like he he was interested in far more than just sort of the nuts and bolts of unionization. He believed that that was a launching pad for a much larger social movement. And so, for example, he did not want any of the union organizers to be paid. He thought that they should be doing this as like volunteering for this larger purpose and larger movement. And people were saying like, but I need gas reimbursement if right. I'm going to go around and organize things. And he was kind of against that. And so in the 70s, the movement got like kind of very weird and strange and a little bit cultish um, if, if you start studying like what was going on in 75 and 76 and 77. And all of this, as I was reading this book and I had to write a paper about it, and I was like, this, is, this movement is kind of following a little bit kind of the general patterns that I remember from my days of studying revolutions when I was younger, which is like it kind of starts out with these limited aims and then it becomes uh, subsequently more radicalized. And then there's like a Termidorian reaction, which did kind of happen. There was conflict inside of it as people then opposed, um, you know, sort of the more messianic qualities of the United Farm Workers Movement. Mm-hmm. And so I put, I picked up this very old book that I had read uh, called Anatomy of Revolution by Crane Brinton, and I applied the structure of Crane Brinton's book Anatomy of Revolution to the United Farm Workers Movement. Wrote a paper about that, 
Um, and then I was sitting there. I had just ended the history of Rome and was like, oh, man, this is what I should do. I should talk about these great revolutions in history. And like mm-hmm. just a little light bulb went off in my head. Um, it was the second good idea that I've ever had in my life. Um, <laughs> I've had about five. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe six, mm-hmm. you know, non-family division. But I, I think I've had like five or six good ideas that actually worked of the many thousands of ideas that have, have run through my noodle over the years. Um, yeah. And yeah, so that was back in 2012. And I've been doing revolutions ever since. And it's just now ending. Um, I'm wrapping it up, which I also think is a good idea. Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely going to let you get control over your life in a lot of ways, I'm sure, or at least let you so, let you focus on other projects because that could be yeah. Like, there's very, there's other things to be done. I mean, the, the the I mean, look, I, I look at the bibliographies of the work that you do, and I just see just like book after book after book. It's just so many like so much work that you're pulling from too, and the perspective that you're providing is, I think, fairly balanced. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing that I'm excited about is that over the last 15 years, I've basically had two things that I've been allowed to study. One of them was ancient Rome, which for about five, seven years, all I did was read books about ancient Rome. Uh, And for the past nine years or so, all I've done is read on topic because I have to put out a new episode every week. So like that kind of consumes my life. So I haven't really been able to read off topic in like 15 years. So when I finally wrap up the show, I have this I have this book list, right? All these books that I have not been able to read over the years is people like, have you read this book? Have you read this book? I was just out with some guys in Brooklyn. They were like, have you read this mm-hmm. book? Have you read? I'm like, no, I haven't read that book. I had to explain 1848 to everybody. Um, and that's all I did was read about 1848 for like a year. Uh-huh. You understand what it is that I do here. Um, but when I but when I put bibliographies together, um, one of the things that I am interested in is reading from the widest possible sort of um, from a historiographic perspective, both ideological takes on all the various revolutions and also like temporally, I like to read the things that are uh, the works that were produced closest to the revolution kind of by people who were participants in it. And then the first generation after the second generation after the third generation after to kind of follow how these events um, get treated in our in our collective consciousness, um, because the French Revolution is both a historic event that occurred and also an ongoing topic of debate in any current political situation, not just in France, but I think across the globe. Like what you think about the French Revolution and how you perceive the French Revolution and portray the French Revolution says a lot about what you think about contemporary politics. Mm-hmm. And so I like following that. And then I want to know what conservatives think about the French Revolution. I want to know what Marxists think about it. I want to know what anarchists think about it. Um, so that I, so that when I sit down to then craft my narrative, I sort of feel like I have all the pieces in place um, and I haven't had anything overly emphasized or de-emphasized and I know what critiques people are making of each other so that I can be like, well, this is a critique that you're making, but I don't happen to agree with it mm-hmm. or something that maybe I would have naturally agreed with that then I hear a really good critique of it. And I'm like, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will try to give a more nuanced version of, of events here. Um, and then the, hopefully then just sort of like uh, dump out what is something resembling an objective and uh, and factual accounting of events, which is what I'm trying to do to then give people this, uh, the, I guess, the tools they need to uh, to inform their own perspective of history. Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> I just want to circle back a little bit, and you mentioned the because um, you mentioned the sort of idea that. Um, that Chavez had that essentially like, you know, the idea of paid staff and and paid organizers that are on staff for a union is something that he thought was kind of like a bit problematic or counter-revolutionary or things like that. And um, that's not, that's a, that's a debate that actually like continues to rage on within like the like modern labor movement. Even there's this Mm -hmm. sort of, this sort of idea that, um, and, and I think it's, um, I think it's um, a little bit, sort of self-destructive in a lot of ways from a perspective of like obviously you are going to have you know like if you're going to have a movement that's large enough if you're going to have something that's um functional you're going to have to have people who do that at least to some extent for a living and like yeah like especially if it's going to be something that's going to be so big and so broad and so like counter to the current like like the 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 way that capital is organized in in this country like if you want to have like workers um get have any kind of chance for representation in any kind of coherent way you need to have ways to distill those voices and i actually understand the perspective on the back end too of 
of like those, you know, I, I'm a union member. I talk about this, you know, fairly often. Many, many times it feels like the people who do have those, um, those positions, you know, um, might be it, you know, in good faith or bad faith, you know, not always take into account exactly every, you know, the, the main will of the, of the, of the members, because <laughs> they have, a, um, they have other, they have, they have to go along to get along in this, in a separate world. And it's just a very complicated you, wire to walk. Yeah. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that there's a right or a wrong answer to yeah. that part of it, because I, I of course understand the, the notion that like, look, if I'm going to be driving around organizing people, I need to get paid for this. Like I, ha I have rent, I have gas uh, bills, I have to feed myself and I have to be able to do this. Um, you know, I can't go do a full-time job and then also do this <clears throat> and completely commit myself to everything. Uh, so it makes sense on a very practical level to pay people mm -hmm. and have a permanent union staff and, and permanent, you know, union organizers. <clears throat> the, as you just said though, once that happens, you have created an, a power structure that is independent of the interests of the people who mm -hmm. are the membership, right? And the institution of the union then becomes interested in itself <laughs> and getting paid by the union. Now, now you're, you're no longer a worker. You mm -hmm. are a function of the union and that becomes its own little power structure. And we know like, you know, I'm, I'm as pro union as it gets really. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, even though I'm coming out of like a, everybody knows I come out of a liberal tradition and have been progressively <laughs> drifting left over the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, but I've always been very pro union. We know that unions can be corrupt. We know that unions sell out can, can sell out the actual rank and file, um, that, or, uh, you know, negotiators go off the sort of the, the people at the top go off, they make some deal, they're getting kickbacks to make a certain deal. And then they say, Hey, here's your contract. And the people don't actually like it, which I think a lot of that can come from as what, this is what Cesar Chavez wanted to avoid. He didn't want those kinds of things mm -hmm. going on. He wanted the movement to, to maintain a kind of purity, mm -hmm. which I think, uh, does make sense That's in noble. its own way, That's but it is hard, but it is hard then to actually organize because you're asking people to work very hard full-time jobs and then also go off and do this other stuff yeah it's 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 again like a very difficult line to balance uh, let me just pause real quick for station id um you are listening to uh whiv lp new orleans 102.3 this is good morning comrade more information about good morning comrade at goodmorningcomrade.com uh we have mike duncan uh the host and creator of the revolutions podcast the um history of rome podcast and also the author of uh two books as well um the hero of two worlds uh the uh, about the marquis of lafayette and uh what was the storm before the storm the uh the the fall of the what roman the, the, the beginning of the, the beginning end of, of the, the end of the roman republic <laughs> yeah yes uh, it's a very it's a very specific slice of roman history yeah i should have it in front of me but you know this is community radio and i'm doing my best um anyway um you mentioned just a moment ago you're sort of like coming from a liberal tradition and then having some movement um kind of on that i'm interested into uh in that question in a couple of ways one what has that progression sort of been uh and two is that influenced or informed by covering these kinds of things for a living for many years i can't imagine it not but i mean i guess maybe more so how is that the case yeah, I think I think how is the question like because I do sometimes get people asking me like, hey, do you think that your perspective on things has changed with having done revolutions? And it's like, yeah, I've read like five or six hundred books or something <laughs> like, of course, my perspective has changed. It, it would be a very it would be like a tragedy. Like think about a real stubborn dude. You have to be a real stubborn dude to have no, no yeah to read five hundred, let's say, books and not have your opinion change about anything. That's that's a tragedy. That's an intellectual <laughs> tragedy right there. Um, so no, my perspective has absolutely changed in the nine years and all of the reading that I have done. Um, but yeah, so it's it's really a matter of how has it changed, not whether it has changed. Um, and yeah, I w like I said earlier, when I went to school, I studied. But, you know, my concentration was political theory, studied political science and philosophy. And I was, I, you know, the people I was drawn to and the people that I studied the most were kind of like Scottish Enlightenment and post-Scottish Enlightenment people. So I was reading Smith, I was reading Hume, um, and then the utilitarians, and then kind of the capstone to all this is John Stuart Mill. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that's really kind of the 
the place that I was that I went through school and, and emerged from university, having mm. you know sort of lived in most of my intellectual life, mm-hmm. um, which is you know solid liberal tradition. Uh, mm-hmm. Although somebody told me one time, uh, and I I did actually find this to be very true, that Adam, if you read like Theory of Moral Sentiments and you actually read uh, Wealth and Nations, that you will find that it is incontrovertibly true that Adam Smith and Karl Marx have more in common with each other than any. Uh, I think person today who says I'm a follower of Adam Smith. Oh has my God! With yeah, Adam Smith. You know what I mean? Like I'm sure that, this pe- is something. This is something that is very well known. People that fetishize Adam Smith are just like basically that. Basically, people that like love Hayek and just don't want to say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, but if you actually go read Adam Smith, you're yeah. like, oh, okay. Well, and and that's the thing is like, so my my liberalism per se was always sort of of a it was always a left leaning liberalism. Mm-hmm. You know, I sort of like I always like the New Deal and I like Roosevelt and I at times describe myself as a neo Rooseveltian. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- so that's kind of my starting point here, and then just. Yeah, over the past 10 years, um, doing all of these revolutions, which has also been, you know, when you when you study great revolutions of like, say, the Atl- European world and the Atlantic world, which is which is where I'm living, um, you're also doing a general history of that. Mm-hmm. Of, of of this civilization that's kind of unfolding, and so as I as I watched civilization unfold through these uh, revolutionary tumults. The great questions that started coming into it, the political question, then being modified by the social question, then I am reading these things and I'm doing sort of deep thoughts about, mm-hmm. you know, I maybe took it for granted earlier that if you set up a a regime with the bone with the political bones of like a constitution, a bill of rights, you know, citizens and voting and legislatures, like if you erect that political apparatus to create a, a society that can now be defined as free and, you know, then everything else just sort of let it, let it fall where it may, mm-hmm. right? Because we have, we have sort of a, a solidly free society and whatever happens after that just kind of happens in, in the freewheeling and dealing of, of humans running into each other. Because most of the time we're just, we're just individual private humans talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all well and good. But as I move forward, uh, and I think that this is something that was definitely modified by specifically doing revolutions, which is like these really basic questions. Well, if you're working two full-time jobs and you don't, and and that's not even enough to pay like the rent and bills, if you, if basically you're doing this um uh, this working poverty thing that is everywhere in the United States of America. Is anything resembling liberty going on here? No, of course no, not. No, like not really. <laughs> like this is like, and if if you take seriously as I do, um, and as most of the socialists that I started reading did, concepts like liberty and equality, like those those notions that came out of the American Revolution and the French Revolution, like they need to be modified by material conditions uh, mm-hmm. in order to actually create the kind of liberty and equality that that at least I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I th- and then the other bit of it is that that's coming out of the revolution stuff. And then also just like I started the Revolutions podcast in 2013, which was just coming out of the, the financial crash of, of like mm-hmm. 2008, 2009, and sort of everything that was churned up by that moment in history, which I still think is like probably, even with everything else that has gone on, I still kind of point to that as like the defining moment mm-hmm. of, I think my lifetime, like even though mm-hmm. like COVID has been crazy, mm-hmm. also a, a defining moment in all of our lives. But I still look at the 2008, yeah. 2009 sort of financial crash and economic crisis as probably the principal turning point. And that too, like I'm watching all of those current events unfold. I'm watching how we respond to it. I am watching our failure to respond to it in anything resembling mm-hmm. a just way um, while I'm studying all of these revolutions. And yeah, I think I became a bit unmoored from my traditional liberalism and have been drifting on a very warm current to the left ever <laughs> since. Yeah. Um, you know, I think about I think about this a lot, and I, I talk about this a lot on the show, so people who are listening might just be like, duh, he's on about it again. So shut up, Jeff. But, um, like, uh, it, it, obviously, the the what you, what you talked about in, in 2008, the financial crisis has been, like, one of the most kind of pivotal moments in the history, which I'm sure also changed your perspective in some ways. Um, but like, I think about people that are like our age, obviously just a couple a couple of years older than me, but it's not that significant. But like people that are my age, for example, um, like when I just became an adult, 
and I was in high school when, you know, 9-11, I was a junior in high school when 9-11 happened. And that was a hugely transformative moment in the history of this country. Um, and prior to that was the 2000, um, 2000 election, uh, which also was like another like thing that sort of like shook a lot of confidence and faith. And, 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 and then, and then for, for people like me that lived in New Orleans, you would see like government failure because of home hurricane Katrina in 2005 mm -hmm. and then 2008. And it's just like, um, and then, you know, you get the sort of like Occupy Wall Street and then, um, eventually, I mean, I think I'm fairly, I'm Bernie Sanders coming after that is also sort of like, so you just basically see everything from the moment you're becoming like kind of an adult until you're basically ready to, or actually you've been working for a few years or you're getting out of college or whatever in 2008 and you just see the entire everything fall apart over almost a decade. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then you finally for the yeah. first time in your life see like a little bit of hope. And I think that's sort of like why they have a, um, a generation of people right now that feel that um, that they don't have a future and are essentially like yeah, there's, the there's, in the system. There's a real there's a real generational divide out there that I, that I feel actually very strongly because I'm like I said at the beginning like I'm just on the very back end mm -hmm. of like the over like I'm so I'm 42 right now and I was 21 when 9/11 happened and there is such a gap in perspective and in sort of like when it, like household wealth um, you know, wages, like all of these things, like the over 40 set and the under 40 set are, have been living in two different worlds. Yeah. Um, and this is something that, that when we, like when you go talk to, and like, God bless them. These are my parents. These are my parents' sure. friends, um, my aunts and uncles. Uh, but you talk to boomers and older generation X people and they're like, oh, why are you complaining about student debt? Like, why don't you just go get a summer job and pay for your tuition? Mm -hmm. Because it's only $300 because, you know, the state has been subsidizing it at a clip of 90% the whole time you were in school. And then right. when you guys got power, you took all of that away mm -hmm. and put the entire burden of paying for school onto the students themselves, which was never the case when you were growing up. <laughs> right. um, and then you say, oh, well, these kids today, why won't they stop complaining? Uh, when you look at how much housing costs right now mm -hmm. versus when they were buying into houses, and it's just not even, you know, it's just two completely different mm -hmm. worlds. And I, I do think that there is also, um, you know, this is something that I, I went through actually quite personally because growing up in the 80s and 90s and coming out of kind of a liberal tradition, you know, you, the 1990s were a, an incredibly optimistic period mm -hmm. in my life. It was just like, you know, we won, you know, freedom and democracy and, you know, it's the like the end of the, his, the, end of the history business, which I never fully bought into because I knew enough about history to know yeah. that, you know, things just kept going. Um, but it did seem like liberal capitalist democracy was just going to kind of like flourish and everybody was going to prosper. And, you know, like I was young. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was naive. Like I, I do absolutely like cop to that. Um, <laughs> but then heading... Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Who's you know, backed was, off of the yeah. end of history now? He's he's backed off of it. In oh, a lot he, of ways. he. You know, the thing is about that poor guy. Like, no, like, is he? He didn't even mean what we all said that he yeah. meant, right? He he said like this one line, and then he got saddled with it. And then that's a concept that is actually kind of divorced from anything that he was actually saying at the time, which is something sure. I do. Uh, you know, I understand now. But <laughs> the point being that the basically the first half of my life was uh, just a procession of triumphs. Yeah. And the second half of my life, I feel like has been, you know, with exception, um, a procession of like defeats and failures mm -hmm. and and various collapses. And what we're heading into right now with, with this election that by the time you're hearing this has just happened, the mm -hmm. midterms, and then what's gonna happen in 2024, um, and we have a full-blown, basically, you know, I don't even think we need to call them proto-fascist or neo-fascist or crypto-fascist or any other semi-fascist. I don't think we need any of these words. Um, it's you just don't need the qualifiers that much. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah the, on, the only qualifier that I put on it, like, is it's American fascism, mm -hmm. right? Because I think that there, the original is, a, fascism. there is a thing about... <laughs> Yeah, there there is a thing about fascism that that it all, it's always going to have its particular national characteristics because it's it's a nationalistic mm -hmm. movement. So Italian fascism is subtly different from German fascism, yeah, which course. is subtly different from Japanese fascism. We all know this, um, and so like when you hear these arguments about whether or not we're dealing with a fascist, when you just say it's an American fascist movement, mm -hmm. it's it's fascism with American characteristics, right? <laughs> that's what it is, <laughs> and that's what we're dealing with, mm -hmm. um, which is something that was uh, not. Re I don't really feel. Uh, 
you could always see it and you can trace the through lines of this mm -hmm. movement on back through to Pat Buchanan and John Burt Society. Like this, this movement has always been here. Can, um, can we do that in just exploded. a moment? I, it's bottom of the hour. I got to do, um, I got to do station. ID, yeah, for but sure. I, I would like to get into that. I'm sorry to cut you off. Um, but you're listening to uh, good morning comrade WHIV LP new Orleans 102.3. Uh, we have Mike Duncan on the show. We're talking about uh, re revolutions and uh, also sort of the, uh, I guess, American fascism right now. We're talking about fascism in yeah. America and sort of like the conditions that led us us to this point. And 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 you were mentioning um, you were mentioning uh, Buchanan and and a lot of these like you know people that would call themselves also euphemistically um, like like paleo conservatives and things like that. Right. Um, I guess go on. And I wanted to sort of ask like what are the conditions that have um, I, I well actually I I, I can actually. Um, the conditions that are essentially like it, like flaming fascism are the same um, are the same conditions that are inflaming the sort of like new emerging, I guess you would say, like left movement in America. Yeah, something, so, and this is why I tend to look a lot at 2008 and 2009 as something that mattered a lot in American history. But there, there's no. There's never going to be any one thing that you can point to and say like, well, this is this is when it all came around. Because my friend Spencer Ackerman wrote a very good book called Reign of Terror that really links, um, you know, everything that we see in the MAGA movement today back to uh, through the lens of basically of 9/11. Mm -hmm. That 9/11 really did unleash a lot of sort of xenophobic um, warmongering, oh, yeah. nationalist, a re a renationalizing of the American consciousness in the sense of there's, we once again have a them, um, that is, you know, these Islamo, but which they called Islamo fascists. <laughs> they just sort of like invented these things, um, which isn't like actually a thing. I mean, there's yeah. theocrats, they're autocratic theocrats and they suck and they fucking, yeah. oh, I did it again. Um, oh, and I hate these guys. Uh, but, um, yeah, this, this goes back, there's just benchmarks to it. And yeah. the thing is, a lot of what we're seeing right now, as you said, right, which is, you know, when you look at the origins of fascism and the, and the sort of the ideals and the mentalities that even informed the Germans and the Italians back in the early 20th century, a lot of that was also present simultaneously in the United States because of the institutions that the United States has been built on. Mm -hmm. um, there, There is something, and this is also, I think, part of my, a, a bit of my divergence from from my liberal friends and from my former liberalism is that there, there's this notion that the MAGA movement and Trump himself are like sui generis, like new things that have entered the body politic, that there was this thing called the United States of America that was good and just and noble. Um, and it has now been infected by this virus. Yeah. Um, and it, but those unfortunately, people, those people aren't, haven't been listening to AM talk radio since the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also don't really know anything about American history from its founding. Correct, <laughs> which is the other problem. Um, yeah, these these aren't new things, and and a lot of what MAGA is trying to accomplish is to resurrect a lot of the institutions, politically, socially, and culturally, that have actually defined American history for most of American history, mm -hmm. um, and that and that the. Um, the sort of divergence in American history, if you're going to call it that, is this sort of post-World War II rights revolution that mm -hmm. did go on, you know, civil rights and women's rights and LGBT rights. Um, there, there was a lot that was going on during this period after World War II that is, that's the unique part of American history as opposed to what is going on right now, which is a lot of return to form, which is deeply unsettling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know it's really it's uh, you mentioned like some of these specific things. I can put um, like some specific stuff to it. So I, I've been you know knocking on doors for various candidates um, for um, for the upcoming election that will have been passed by the time that you're listening to this. But um, like sometimes I'm, I'm knocking on the door for somebody for school board, for example, and they want to know like the people at the door sometimes will ask you, well, what is this school board member's position on something like abortion? And it's like, what, you want me to just say, like, no abortion in schools or something? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> like, what's going on here? Like, like, wh why do you care? This is school. This is school district. This is school board stuff. What does that have to do with education? What does that have to do with, with anything? You know, it's about it. it it's and, you know, if you it, it's, it's obviously you, you try to deflect from these kind of things when you're talking to people. But it's just like one of those kind of things where you, you, you 
people will make their decisions on like 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 voting issues you know which is how a lot of this sort of like angst gets translated in like in, in some ways i mean obviously there's there's violence and there's these you know rallies and also there's I mean, never see, look at Facebook. That's that's another way that people kind of release a lot of their anger and angst about these things. But um, uh, it, it's really interesting to me that somebody would would care what a school what a what a school board potential can, you know school board candidate would with their position on abortion would be because it's n- got nothing to do with the position. But people are going to make their decisions based off of that for one for one example. Yeah, and we and yeah, and we have we've re-entered a kind of uh political tribalism in that way. Mm-hmm. Um and all of that feeds into the sort of the the broad nationalization of politics where people have become because I think uh, largely because of the internet um and mass media in general that we tend to see all things through the lens of these big national issues mm-hmm. instead of like well what's you know what's actually going on in this local school, mm-hmm. uh, and what are people actually doing, as opposed to what am I seeing on the news that I now need to respond to. So there's like three or five issues. Well, I'm surprised they didn't ask you like what you know what's their position on you know like capital gains taxes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's that's going to inform my my decision about uh, about what about about who should run for school board. Yeah, um, well, you would be surprised mm-hmm. that actually does matter to a certain extent here because they have this thing called the industrial tax exemption program that like essentially allows for um, comp- like uh, businesses to expand their business and all the capital that would be put towards that is essentially not taxed. So it's huge oh. savings for oh, okay. um, for these companies and they go through um, they go through like local approval like through school boards and local like um, like parish councils or, or, or city councils and, and all these other uh, local local uh, entities which is just like it, it, well, first off, the program itself, I've had uh, people talk about that on this show in the past, and it's just like one of those things that's just like mind-blowing. Like it's just giving away the farm to, to, to like, to like um, ExxonMobil and companies like that, but it's just, it's just also at the same time, like – I don't know. It, 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 some of some of those taxes. It's obviously not capital gains tax. It's a little bit of a different situation. But it's like one of those sort of things that's just like, why is the school board making this decision? Oh, because this tax money would be going to the school board otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we need to rethink a lot of different things. But I do. Sem- I so I semi retract my no, no, no. my oh. loose aside about capital gains taxes <laughs> because apparently it does matter in the very specific <laughs> case of New Orleans. Which sounds which sounds a lot like um, you know what would go on like in French Revolutionary times, like just before <laughs> the Revolution, when when anybody, which is something that's been going on a lot and more and more, which is the people that have the most amount of money are the people who are most exempt from yeah. taxation, and that's not it? a firm basis for a society. Yeah, how will the dog tax combat inflation? <laughs> Um, anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to like get off on that aside, but it's like it, 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 to, to get sort of back to the to the original point, like you are seeing this sort of emergence of like a, you know, reactionary right. And also like, it, I mean, it's probably it, it's largely like capital class and it's largely skews older, but it's not just older because they have these like, I don't know, I kind of like when you mentioned in the French Revolution, the sort of um Muscadin like um reactionary like oh, soldiers yeah, the or whatever. Youth. Yeah. Like that when I saw that Unite the Right rally with all these like dudes in polo shirts like walking around the street talking about how Jews will not mm-hmm. replace us or whatever, like I, I, how could you not make that connection <laughs> in a lot of ways? Yeah, those yeah, those yeah, those are those are the Muscadin youth. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. The 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 kid the kids coming out of the country clubs to like to bash to bash heads. Yeah. Um are are actually a thing. And yeah, I th- I think that there is it's it's very difficult to like in the brief amount of time that we're going to have together to like mm-hmm. disentangle everything. Yeah, but there was, I think, and it probably still is among a certain set. This belief that what we're seeing right now is sort of like the primal scream, like the final existential burst of a generation that is dying away, that feels its power. You know, at, at, you know, in the twilight of their life, they see the America that they believed in slipping away from them. And so they want to push back against all that and try to hold on and recreate something like what they remember. And that this doesn't actually have anything to do with people in their teens or in their 20s or in their 30s or in their 40s. Mm-hmm. I That's not something that I 
really recognize. Yeah. Um, because I do see these people existent. Um, we know that kids are coming up through internet culture uh, that is very reactionary, very right-wing, very misogynistic, very racist. All of those ideas are widely disseminated among among you know basically your your edge lord fifteen year olds. Yeah, if you play if Call of Duty, coming, if you play Call of Duty online with the with the voice chat on, you're going to hear every slur in the book. Yep. From a from yep. a from and a squeaky voice. I, do, I don't do that, but yeah. I believe it. From a squeaky um, from a squeaky even, voiced little like Jimmy Timmy on the other end too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's yeah. It's it's all very disturbing. Um. So there are some things that clearly I think you know, the, the youth of America, such as they are, you know, I used to be a part of the youth of America. And then the next thing I knew I had like kids in a mortgage and I realized <laughs> I wasn't, I was not speaking yeah. for the youth of America anymore. Yeah. Your back um, hurts a lot I'm more. Speak- <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I don't know what I am. Petty bourgeois, middle-aged guy. Um, or I'm, I'm artisan class, you know, I'm mm-hmm. artisan intellectual. Yeah. Um, that's what the top no of bo- no bosses, too. no bosses, no employees. That's, that's <laughs> the road for me. Um, what was I saying? Oh, oh. yeah, that um, that there there are certain cultural issues that I think matter a lot less. Um, you know, one would hope that uh, on all LGBT issues that like the kids just don't seem to care that mm-hmm. much um, as much anymore. Uh, it, it, certainly not in the way that they would have 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I do see some sort of habitual cultural things are different, but you know is. You know, is racism about to end because the boomers are going to die? No, 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 I'm sorry. Not at all. Yeah. Um, You know, and is is capitalism going to die out because all the kids are a part of the Bernie Sanders socialist left? No, that's not going to happen either. You know, it's going to be a fight and a struggle intra-generationally as well as intergenerationally. Yeah, you're listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade. Um, I did want to um, kind of point out that uh, Mike came to New Orleans a little while ago to talk about his book, um, the, um, so, the um, sorry, the uh, Hero of Two Worlds, the Lafayette, the, the Marquis de Lafayette, and the Age of Revolution, and the Age of Revolution. You made a point to make that distinction during your talk, um, but also in. In the Age of Revolution. Oh, in That's the Age of Revolution. You see, I got in it wrong. In the Age of Revolution. I, 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 I should have yep. been listening. Um, but anyway, um, one of the cool things that, that Mike did was he came to uh, visit uh, some of the folks from DSA New Orleans, uh, which I'm a member, uh, at uh, one of our break light clinics. And I guess, you know, that would be, a, a, first off, thanks for coming. Thanks for dropping by. We had some drinks and stuff after, and we had a great time. Um, we did. And I, I guess... To that, that I use that as a uh, jumping off point to ask this question, which is, you know, you are seeing a certain amount of, like I said before, I think the appropriate word is emerging sort of left, um, so, sort of a left coming up. It's nowhere near as well funded or as like heavily organized as the sort of right wing operations are. Um, but I guess yep. what do you make of this sort of development that it's been probably you know the the seeds of it were planted at least in um at least in really i mean they, obviously there was always like some kind of nascent left that existed in america but it was sort of planted in terms of um or at the time of i guess occupy wall street and sort of learned at least how to engage directly politically in the you know with the 2016 and 2020 uh, bernie sanders uh campaigns i guess what do you make of what the state of the left is i guess and like where we're at is sort of like what i'm doing a long wind up to this question of yeah well i think that you know my coming up let's see the like the first election that i was a part of was 1998 Mm -hmm. um that was like the first year that i voted um and back then there was no left in my world. Um, certainly, not the, a, I grew, certainly, not, so I, certainly not a political left in any way. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm, and I came up in, you know, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. Um, so I, I went to school in this, this little state college, like called Western Washington university, which had a very large, like kind of like hippie, um, component to it. Like it was, it was a lot of like back to nature hippie types mm-hmm. who that was sort of what the left was. It was, there was a very strong, like hippie left, um, very like where I lived in Bellingham, Washington, lots of Nader voters. Um, and so this, <laughs> but this, but this to me, I was, um, really hostile, like very, very hostile to the, to the Nader hippie left in Bellingham, Washington, because, 
I was coming from a very practical place, which is I identified Bush as a very troubling candidate <laughs> very early and was like, you guys, we have to, we have to beat Bush. That's mm -hmm. the thing. And, and this is a lot of like what my mentality was mm -hmm. through the next couple of cycles is that there's something happening over here with the Republicans that I think is worse than anything that is happening with these moderate Democrats that you're, that you're really, really opposed to. Mm -hmm. Um, so I supported Gore. I supported Kerry. Um, you know, I expected Gore to come back in 2008, to be perfectly honest with you. I lost a hundred dollars <laughs> oh. um, because Al Gore traveled, he traveled, he traveled around on a, um, on an inconvenient truth. And I was like, he's yeah. doing it. He's coming back. He's, he's going to, he's going to pull the reverse yeah. Nixon. The problem and, uh, is, the problem that. is that he did it on a, on a private plane. And that was just like, oh, now he's just, <laughs> now he's just going to take every arrow for that one, <laughs> which is so silly. Yeah. Right? So silly. But, and then, and then of course also like, you know, uh, the WTO protest happened in Seattle. Yeah. Like I, I, I missed the WTO protest because I had gone to a concert out in the gorge that weekend. And we were, <laughs> we drove back from the gorge back up to Bellingham and we're like, should we stop for these WTO protests. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest with you. We were very tired because of a number of substances that we had taken, um, at the concert. And so we were like, no, nah, let's just keep going. So I missed the WTO stuff mostly because of, um, stuff, things that I had done mm -hmm. at the concert, um, which is very enlightening and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but, but the point being that, that I think that through those years, kind of, it was very easy to dismiss the, whatever the Cusinich left, uh, that, that was sort of existed during this period. And then again, the financial crisis comes along. Mm -hmm. And I think that what, what that did for me, I think too, is I, I think that coming, I'm thinking, I'm thinking out loud a little bit right now, mm -hmm. um, that coming out of the cold war, my mentality was like, sort of like liberal capitalism and democracy won. communism, Marxism lost, right? Like there was this close to century long conflict between these two ideologies. One of them was superior and triumphed. The other failed because of its many problems, contradictions, and slide into sort of totalitarian autocracies that, you know, were not able to provide for the basic needs of their society. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I think, the mentality that I, that I entered the 1990s with. And then when I got to the financial crisis and everything that was going on for there, I think that's when it started churning in my head that like, well, okay, maybe actually not everything that the Marxists were saying and that socialists were saying and that communists were saying about the nature of capitalism were incorrect. Mm -hmm. And that we actually do need something uh, like, a, like a, a hard challenge from that wing mm -hmm. of um, of our consciousness in order to combat what's going on, which is deunionization, deregulation, um, the dismantling of all social programs, all of which I believed in because I'm, again, I'm coming out of sort of a new deal yeah. tradition. This is where I am mentally. Um, that when all of those institutions of the left were dismantled, what we see is an incredibly toxic austerity program mm -hmm. that was implemented after that crisis, which is the the pinnacle. This And we saw this in Europe too. I lived in Europe for three years uh, in order to write the book. And so I got a nice perspective on them too, is those guys, the, the sort of the capitalist wing and the Davos wing of Europe, they were so excited by the financial crisis because they were finally going to be able to dismantle the social welfare state that they had erected only as a bulwark against communist infiltration of mm -hmm. Western Europe. So the only reason they do these things is because they were afraid of the communist and now they hadn't been able to dismantle it because everybody had gotten used to and accustomed to these things. And then when the financial crisis comes along, they're like, oh man, we can't afford to have like Health, yeah, healthcare and unions anymore. Like we just have to cut all of this stuff. They'd been waiting in the tall grass to do that for 20 years yeah. um, after the Berlin Wall came down and then they finally got the opportunity to do it. So all of those things, you know, when I look right now at the left, the, the thing that most excites me is reunionization. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's and I don't know if I'm I, I don't know if I'm crossing any advocacy lines here, but mm. my <laughs> okay, good. My my considered opinion on all of this. Unions are is cool. Reunion unions are good. And unions are good not just for protecting um, uh, workers from, a, from an incredibly insecure environment where everybody wakes up every day not sure whether or not they're going to be laid off or have a job or have health care. Uh, what happens if I get sick? You know, all of these things that used to have an answer 
because of unions now don't have an answer and it leaves us all very insecure. Uh, so seeing reunionization, I think, is a, is a critical component of any reestablishment of the left because the left can't survive just as a political party, mm-hmm. right? DSA can't survive just as a political party. It needs that um, that organizational component economically and socially in order to sort of provide the, for lack of a better word, like the muscle and the votes and the, and the power to actually fuel the movement, which I think sh- could and should and needs to be somewhat of a separate component from the political party apparatus itself, right? I, I do think that the labor unions need to maintain their own independent identity separate from whatever political party is going to be representing them. Because what the Democratic Party would like to do is just to have everything get folded into the Democratic Party establishment. Yep. And all they want all they want from people, all these and now I'm getting on my high horse. No, 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 go ahead. All these people want from us is to provide one vote per year, per election, and give three dollars to every single campaign, in, which is all, what all of our email inboxes are currently flooded with, yeah. which is, can't you just give $3? Can't you? All Mike, they want Mike, from us is Nancy. monetary donations <laughs> and one vote. And that's all that they expect in terms of political participation in American society. And mm-hmm. that's not enough. Yeah, that's- and so that's, I think, where a lot of what is fueling they think that it's continuing to fuel a left-wing movement inside the inside that establishment inside of American politics is because that's not satisfactory. It's not yeah. satisfactory to me to be told the only thing that I should do is vote once and give a couple of dollars. Mm-hmm. That's not it's not enough. It's not enough and also like it is a recipe for like complete and utter disaster if you ask me. I mean like if you're looking at, if you're essentially saying that you can just like set democracy or whatever democracy is on the ballot in every election essentially and all you have to do is Mm -hmm. turn out and vote 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 dem then like if you do that and then like that's the essentially the entirety of your political program it you're you're essentially like deflecting or misdirecting from what the democrats themselves are attempting to do and and again like the the situation that they have in is like they're gonna send you these emails you know Mike it's Nancy I'm really you know hoping that you can help me out and she's like turning out her pockets and she's like she's broke or something and um and uh, it's so annoying it's, I get those it's, emails and it's so annoying but um yeah it's so annoying and that's the thing like people are like. Again, again, getting back to like that original, like, you know, it's doing revolutions, you know, influenced you like, yes, it has, but also just like my encounters with American society as it is currently functioning is also the thing that's just like this, this strategically is awful. And every, and every single time that like there, there does start to be some kind of, um, popular either protest movement or demonstration movement, or there there is an opportunity for sort of grassroots demonstrations of groups of people. It feels a lot like the Democratic Party grandees just want to short circuit it and oh, yeah. sabotage say, it and they'll, they'll send say, everybody home and just say, this isn't the way, the only way to do anything is just to vote that one time in that yeah. one election. And that's the only thing that that's the only thing that you're allowed to do. Mm-hmm. And anything else we're going to be really afraid of and try to try to dismantle as quickly as humanly possible. Yeah, they say that openly. They say that openly. It's like mm-hmm. when you have yes. protests in the street of people who are like upset about George Floyd being like murdered by police and, you know, have have a you know foot on his head or, or his neck or whatever. And like people are out in the streets, they're essentially like saying and people are saying like, again, the messaging is the messaging that the 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 um that the movements are going to have. They're saying defund the police and all these other things. And you can agree with that or you can disagree with that or whatever. You, what you cannot do is say, well, you people that are upset with all of these police murders that are happening all over the country. And it's, um, it's a really, it's, you know, it's a really big deal. And the way that we're going to solve it is by like, wearing a kente cloth and kneeling on the floor of the uh, House of Representatives. And that's the that's the appropriate way to protest. And then you got to vote. Go, go home, write a check for five dollars <laughs> yeah. and then vote like yeah. that's what. And and the thing that the other thing, of course, that drives me crazy. And I think that this is also true of people of, of our generation and younger, as opposed to an older generation, is that older folks still continue to treat the Republican Party as something of a, of an institution that is is like an honest institution, right? That is operating in good faith. 
and that there is a there is a part of the Republican Party that is kind of taken over that is maybe operating in bad faith. But mostly, what we need to do is get a good faith Republican Party back in operation. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a good faith Republican operation <laughs> in my lifetime. Right? I, you know, George Bush and Al Gore. That was the first election that I participated in and I have didn't see anything resembling good faith coming out of the Bush administration. People now talk people weirdly talk about Bush now as um as somebody who who respected the norms of government and it's like I opposed the Iraq war and they accused me of treason yeah. basically. Like that that is what they did, like what they did to Max Cleland. So my point being that um uh when you have all of these things and the Democratic Party establishment get very freaked out and they want to back away from it mm-hmm. um, because they don't want to be painted as as encouraging all of this stuff. And they don't want to be painted as radicals who are trying to destroy American cities. Mm-hmm. Dude, that's what Republican ads are going to say no matter what. Yeah. So you, you can't can, be you can either that. embrace it. You can either embrace it and take the positive and take the power that is being generated, or you can cut yourself off from all of that and still be accused of doing all the things that you don't want to be accused of doing. So like those right. are your options. There is not an option where Republicans do not accuse Democrats of being like radical communists who want to destroy America mm-hmm. full stop, yeah. right? And that's where like my sort of like good faith reading of some of the things that they do like runs out. I, 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 we gotta we gotta go because um, we're running up on time. Mike, uh, where can people find about what you're up to? Where can people uh, um, find either revolutions or any of the other stuff you have? You can find the Revolutions podcast wherever you find any podcasts. Uh, it's everywhere. You can find the History of Rome too, which is out there. Uh, and then I've written two books, which are also both available. Uh, anywhere. One is Hero of Two Worlds. The other is Storm Before the Storm, the beginning of the end of the Roman Republic, both of which I, I actively encourage you to go find your local bookseller and buy it from them and not from the website that shall not be named uh, <laughs> that doesn't need your book sale money mm-hmm. to operate, right? Mm-hmm. Why don't you give your money to people who actually need book sale money yeah. to operate their businesses? Yeah. good. We love bookstores, don't we, folks? Um, yeah, so we thank do. you so much, Mike. Uh, and you have been listening to Good Morning Comrade on WHIVLP New Orleans. We love you. Goodbye. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, sorry, like. That-